Ichabod Spencer, born 1798, came to faith at age 18, and faithfully served at the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, so just up the road on I-91. In fact, the same church that was made famous by Jonathan Edwards about 100 years earlier. But Ichabod Spencer only stayed there for five years, 1828 to 1832. But in those five years, more than 250 people came to faith in Christ. So on average, that's 50 people per year, 12 people per month, three people per week, which means on average, one person was coming to faith every other day. So here's the question. Why in the world would a pastor ever leave a ministry like that? Well, Ichabod Spencer wore himself out in the work, so he left for health reasons. Rather than taking a call at Park Street Church in Boston, the largest church in New England, he took a call at the Second Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, New York, which was a church plant. So no church building and only 40 people. Then he stayed there the rest of his life, during which time the church grew to be one of the largest and most influential churches in all of New York. But why? Why did it grow? Was it because Ichabod Spencer was one of the greatest preachers in New England at the time? Some would say that, but not him. Spencer would say it was because of the universal offer of the gospel that was not only proclaimed on Sunday mornings, but was offered during weekly visitations, which he did all 22 years of his ministry. In fact, he averaged over 800 appointments every year talking with people about the state of their souls for 22 years. So faithfully sowing the seed of the word consistently and faithfully sowing the seed of the word indiscriminately. And he recorded each interaction, which only highlighted how people responded differently to the ministry of the word, including those who repented and believed and those who made the choice to reject Jesus. In fact, in one interaction, the man said to him, how do you know what to say to each and every person? He responded, I conspire with the Holy Spirit. And if I perceive that the Holy Spirit has impressed any one truth on the person's mind, I simply strive to drive that truth deeper. By the way, that man said to him, I, have, I feel I have a very wicked heart, to which Ichabod Spencer replied, it's a great deal more wicked than you think. Which angered the man. He was so utterly frustrated with him. And yet that's exactly what God used to draw that person to himself where he came to faith in Christ. So Ichabod Spencer simply sowed the seed of the word. And he trusted that God would use it in people's lives to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Which is, is exactly what our passage is about this morning. The preaching of the gospel and the different responses to the word of God. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 is on page 1006 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. also encourage you to have my outline right there 
in your Bible as we walk through the text. As you know, we're kicking off our summer sermon series in the parables, but we're specifically starting in Mark chapter 4, because Jesus not only teaches the parable of the soils, he also explains to us the purpose of parables. So if you look at my outline, you'll see the flow of where we're going this morning, teaching of the gospel, purpose, teaching of the parable, purpose of the parables, and explaining of the parable. So if you would follow along, I'll read the entirety of our text, Mark 4, verses 1 to 20. Again, he began to teach, this is Jesus, beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky soil, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky soil, the one, ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves to be unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now, the first thing you need to realize is that the parables always come in a context. So, A, context of the parable. So, Mark 4 doesn't come out of nowhere, but instead is directly related to what's already taken place in Mark chapters 1 to 3. So, if you would, go ahead and flip back to Mark chapter 1, Verse 14, because very quickly in the gospel of Mark, we're told how Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
So Jesus is preaching. He's sowing the seed of the word. And how are the people responding? Well, look at verses 16 to 20. Jesus is passing by the Sea of Galilee, and he calls Simon and Andrew, James and John. And how do they respond? Well, verse 18, verse 20. They immediately leave their nets and their family, and they follow Jesus. Same is true with Levi, chapter 2, verse 13, and all the disciples, chapter 3, verse 13. So number one, some immediately follow Jesus. Whereas number two, some were just amazed. Meaning they were intrigued by Jesus' teaching, but they didn't make the commitment to follow him. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 21. Mark says, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority. So they're astonished by his teaching, but they're also amazed by his miracles. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out right there in the synagogue. So during the church service, if you will, what have you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Notice the response, verse 27. And they were all amazed. Of course they were amazed. (laughs) It's the middle of the service and a guy stands up and starts yelling and he casts out the demon. I mean, if I did that during a service, you would be amazed as well, wouldn't you? (laughs) So some immediately followed. Some were amazed, astonished, but they didn't follow. And some outright rejected Jesus. If you would flip forward to chapter 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. So he's always going in the synagogue. He's always preaching the gospel. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So they, the Pharisees, might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, said to the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at, notice, their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. As a result, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus to do what? to destroy him, to have him killed. So absolutely, the parable of the soils comes in a context, specifically the context of Jesus preaching the gospel and how the people are responding. Because what's the clear command given in Mark 1.15? Repent and believe. I mean, Jesus just said to them, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. How should they respond according to Jesus? Repent and believe the gospel. But that's not how everyone responds. So then what does he do? He teaches a parable. Now, as we think about 
chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, and B, the content of this parable, I just want to say to you, there's nothing tricky to understand here. I mean, there's obviously a large crowd around Jesus, but there's always a large crowd. Really not too difficult to gather a crowd when you're casting out demons, healing the sick, and telling a paralyzed man to take up his bed and walk. Stuff like that generally draws a pretty big crowd. But what I want you to notice is how Jesus begins and ends his parable. Verse 3, Jesus says, listen. Essentially, Hear these words. Then verse 9, he finishes by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So from start to finish, this parable is all about hearing the word, receiving the word, and living the word. So hearing the word that results in obedience and bearing fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. But again, there's nothing tricky about the parable. No doubt for an agricultural society, this was all part and parcel of everyday life. And there's really only two parts to the story, right? There's the sower sowing the seed and there's the soils receiving the seed. Now, obviously in this culture, there's no big farm equipment or anything like that. But instead you have this sower who's using what was well known as the broadcasting method, right? So he's walking along and he's, he's dipping his hand in the seed bag and he's throwing out the seed. Right hand, left hand, right hand, left hand as he's walking. He, he's sowing the seed indiscriminately over the entire field. So he's not sowing the seed one seed at a time, but indiscriminately casting the seed. And obviously, three of the soil types are bad. They would have known they were bad. Why are they bad? Because they bear no fruit. Whereas the last soil type yields a harvest of 30, 60, 100 fold. So the picture is clear, and the people would have immediately understood it. The sower sows the seed, and there's four different responses. Some soil is hard. Seed never sinks in. Some soil is shallow, so it grows, but it gets scorched out by the sun. Some of the seed is is in thorny soil, grows, but eventually is choked out. And some soil is good, receives the seed, bears fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. Super straightforward. It almost sounds like common sense. So then why teach in parables. Well, Jesus tells us. Number two, the purpose of the parables, verse 10, if you would look there again. When Jesus was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. So obviously, that's a pretty major shift in the scene because we go from a very large crowd down to Jesus with the 12 and a few others. They're all stumped. So they have the same question you would have 
If I got up here this morning and I told you a story like this with absolutely no explanation, and then I just went and sat down. So sure, you would understand the story, but the question would still be in your mind, so what? Why are you telling me this common sense story? Meaning, what's the point? Well, in verses 10 to 12, Jesus lets the small crowd in on the two purposes of the parables. So A, to reveal the kingdom of God, and B, to conceal the kingdom of God. So first he says to the insider, the the crowd of disciples, verse 11, to you has been given, notice the secret of the kingdom of God, but those outside everything in parables. Now it's helpful to understand this word secret or mystery because it only occurs once in the gospel of Mark, but it occurs 21 times in the epistles. Just for clarity, it's not referring to something strange or unique, but instead refers to something that was formerly hidden, but now is being revealed by God. In fact, one commentator points to Daniel chapter 2 in order to explain it. If you remember back in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a number of different dreams, pretty wild dreams, crazy dreams. But God always revealed the interpretation to Daniel. Listen to his explanation, Daniel 2.27. Daniel answered the king, and he said to the king, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer could ever show the king the mystery you asked for. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. But as for me, Daniel, this mystery has been revealed. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to you by God. So the secret can't just be figured out by worldly wisdom. No wise man, no enchanter, no magician or astrologer. So it can't just be discovered by your intellectual abilities or by some sort of research that you can do. Instead, God has to reveal it to you, which means it's by grace and grace alone, specifically God's grace, because we're talking about the kingdom of God. So God's kingdom and God's mystery that must be revealed by God and by God alone. You know, one commentator said, It will become increasingly clear that the message of the kingdom of God is something so paradoxical, so totally opposed to the natural human insight that it takes nothing less than divine revelation in order to enable a person to grasp it and get a hold of it. It is, after all, the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, is why the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. So if you're here this morning and you're on the inside, that means God revealed the good news of the gospel to you. Because otherwise, it would still be foolishness. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Which means, according to Jesus, verse 11, you're on the inside. Which should cause your heart to absolutely swell with thankfulness and praise to God. Because you didn't figure it out on your own. You're not smarter than your friend or wiser than your neighbor or more capable than your coworker who are all still living in total rebellion to the one true king. No, you're the recipient of grace, undeserved kindness, which means all glory, honor, and praise must go to the only one who deserves it. God himself. So as we dig into the parables this summer, may we grow in thankfulness and praise to God for the glorious gift that he's given to us of revelation that we might know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Which brings us to B. And the second purpose of the parables, which is to conceal the kingdom of God. Again, verse 11, Jesus says to you, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Why is everything in parables? So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may hear, but not understand, lest they should return and be forgiven. Now, the reason that we started with Mark chapters 1 to 3 in the context of all the different ways people are responding to Jesus is so that you might better understand the reference here to those who are outside. But for those outside, everything in parables. So who's currently on the outside? Well, clearly the religious leaders who are scheming to kill Jesus who also, by the way, just accused Jesus of being possessed by a demon, Mark 3.22. But it even includes Jesus' own family members. In fact, look at Mark 3.31. Tells us his mother and brothers came and standing notice. Where are they standing? Outside. They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, around Jesus, and said to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So clearly the coming of the kingdom of God has drawn some pretty distinct lines with regard to Jesus, meaning you're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. 
You're either an insider or you're an outsider. And soon enough, those amazed and astonished who are on the fringe are going to have to decide. Are you with Jesus or are you against Jesus? Now, what nails down this interpretation is the fact that Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 12. And the context of that passage is super helpful because in Isaiah chapter 5, God tells a parable. Isaiah 5, God himself tells a parable about a vineyard where he is the owner and Israel is the vineyard. Despite God's loving care, the vineyard fails to produce any fruit. In other words, Israel fails to respond rightly to God and fails to obey God. And as a result, Isaiah is commissioned to warn them about a coming judgment. But unfortunately, that warning falls on deaf ears. They see, but they don't perceive. They hear, but they don't understand. And ultimately, God uses Israel's rejection to bring about his perfect sovereign will. So what's the point? Well, the point is Jesus is dealing with the Israel of his day, specifically the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are no different than the Israel of old because they're following the same old pattern and not responding rightly to God or obeying God. Because Jesus is right there in front of them. God's prophet, God's son with God's announcement, right? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is the kingdom of hand? Because the king is at hand. So how should they respond? How should they respond to God? They should repent. And they should believe the gospel. And they should absolutely not reject the king and kill him. And yet that's exactly what they're going to do. So Jesus' concealing words are both a result of their rejection and the means by which God will bring about his good and perfect plan of redemption. In fact, that's exactly what Peter declares. Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, and I quote, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. So please, make the connection. Because in the Bible... We see both man's responsibility, so their independent choices, right next to God's sovereign plan. So they're declared side by side, working together in perfect harmony. No tensions whatsoever. So just like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, have hardened their hearts against Jesus. And at the same time, God is also hardening their hearts. So scripture is clear. God both reveals and he conceals the kingdom of God. While at the exact same time, man both accepts Jesus and man rejects Jesus. So let me just pause. Because after hearing all that you've heard already this morning, 
you've now been let in on the secret. Because that which was hidden for century, God has made known to you in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So how should you respond? Well, you absolutely do not want to harden your heart. But instead, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. That you may be forgiven of your sin. That you may be reconciled to God. That you may be promised the glorious hope of eternal life. Because the Bible's clear. The ball is in your court as to how you're going to respond to Jesus. You have complete freedom. So here's the question. Will you accept him as Lord and Savior of your life? Or will you reject him as the king that he is? Now, of course, responses to that question are far more nuanced than a simple yes or no answer. Which is why Jesus explains the parable. If you would look again at verse 13. Number three, explaining the parable. Jesus says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves to be unfruitful. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, a hundredfold. So clearly the sowing of the seed is likened to the preaching of the gospel. So the good news of the gospel must be proclaimed indiscriminately, meaning to absolutely everyone, independent of their background or their culture or their socioeconomic status. None of those earthly designations should ever come into play when it comes to the sowing of the word of God. It must be proclaimed indiscriminately. And everything else is the different responses. Again, just think about the context of Mark chapters 1 to 3. Because the parable explains the different responses to Jesus. So the first seed is sown along the path and is immediately snatched away by the birds, which Jesus identifies as Satan. So in context, that's the religious leaders who've been totally against Jesus the entire time. So despite being experts in the law, they totally miss the Messiah, even though he's standing right there in front of them. So there's nowhere for the seed to penetrate their hard and their hardening hearts. Instead, it bounces off and it's snatched away. So they hear, or they can hear him, but they don't understand Jesus. They listen to what he's saying, but they don't obey. Let me just ask, is that you this morning? Are you hearing the word proclaimed? But you already decided when you came in this morning that you're going to reject it. 
Are you forced to be here this morning? You have no intention of listening to anything that I'm saying. Maybe at times when I get all animated and run around, you're like, that's a little funny, but you're not listening to anything I'm saying. Is that you this morning? Did you come in this morning already having decided I'm not going to hear what he says? I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to respond to it. I would appeal to you, is your heart that hardened to the universal offer of the gospel? You know, we just finished the book of Hebrews, where the author said, chapter 3, verse 7, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called, today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I appeal to you, soften your heart to this incredible message of salvation so that you might be forgiven of your sin, that you might be reconciled to God and promised the glorious hope of eternal life. Why would you be so unkind to your own heart? Soften your heart. And please don't think that you can suddenly soften your heart tomorrow. I'll just deal with this tomorrow. You know, the Bible never promises you tomorrow. The Bible promises today. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So please don't assume you have tomorrow. That's a bad assumption. Instead, repent today. Believe today. Don't wait. Don't leave. Do not assume. But respond. Today. Let today be the day of salvation for you. Believe in Jesus today. That's the hard soil. Then Jesus explains the shallow soil which is a superficial heart that immediately receives the word with great joy, but lacks any kind of depth. So there's no place for roots to dig in and mature. And again, be clear on the result. No fruit. So when trials and tribulation and persecution come, and please notice it's not a question of if, but when. So when trials come, and they will come, these people immediately fall away. Now, in context, that certainly includes some of the crowds who are amazed by Jesus' teachings, his healings, and his miracles. So you've got to understand, curiosity about Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. So don't deceive yourself into thinking that all is well with my soul just because I'm not against Jesus. Not being against Jesus is radically different than believing in Jesus. You know, one of my greatest fears in the church today is that we just have a bunch of nice people, really nice people, sweet people, who are not against Jesus. That's very different than a lot of people who have their faith in Jesus. But unfortunately, 
How would we ever know that? How do you know if you're a person who is just not against Jesus or if you're a person who believes in Jesus? How would you figure that out? Well, Jesus tells us. A little persecution will make that abundantly clear. So let me just ask, what happens right now in your life when following Jesus starts to cost you something? Because Jesus says, to him who is faithful with a little, more will be given. But to him who is not, even what he has will be taken away. So how do you do right now when you're given the opportunity to stand up and declare to the people around you, I'm with Jesus. Just want to be clear, I'm with Jesus. Well, that's a pretty helpful test, isn't it? Because right now in our culture, following Jesus doesn't mean you're going to get stoned, sawn in two, or killed with the sword like we saw in Hebrews 11. But you might get ostracized. You might get shunned. You might get ridiculed for being a person who is ignorant and arrogant and self-righteous and narrow-minded and a bigot. But we should expect that because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's also the only message by which people might be saved. So do you proclaim it boldly? Or are you fearful of being persecuted? Do you proudly stand up and identify yourself as a Christian? Or do you stay quiet? Do you cower in the shadows and hide your faith from the people around you? I appeal to you to be honest with yourself because Jesus is crystal clear. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny them before my Father who's in heaven. I'm saying to you, you need to make a decision right now, right here, with deep conviction that no matter what the cost, doesn't matter what they do to you, make the decision. I'm with Jesus. Whatever trials come, you're crystal clear unwavering because trials will come. Be clear in your own heart. I'm not falling away. I'm with Jesus. So we've got the hard soil. We've got the shallow soil. Then Jesus explains the third soil, the thorny soil. These are those who hear the word, immediately respond with joy. But the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things come in and choke out the word. And again, no fruit. Now, let me be clear here. There's no issues with being wealthy. I mean, a number of saints in the Old Testament were clearly wealthy, including Job and Abraham and David. So it's not money that's the problem, but the love of money that's the problem. I mean, just think about the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10, who comes to Jesus deeply desiring eternal life and who has faithfully kept all the commandments from his youth. What does Jesus say to him? He says, you lack one thing. 
Go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. How does the man respond when he's given the choice between Jesus and his possessions? The text tells us he's disheartened by the choice. And he makes the decision to walk away from Jesus. Why did he do that? Because he's got a lot of stuff. Now contrast that with Matthew 13. Man who's out walking in the field when he finds buried treasure. Meaning he hears the good news of the gospel and the promise of salvation. The text says, enjoy. He went away. What did he do when he went away? He sold everything that he had just so that he could buy the field, just so that he could have Jesus as his savior. So money's not the problem, but the love of money. So then what exactly are these thorns for us today? Well, the worries of the world. So mortgage payments, leaky faucets, car repairs, crying babies, deceitfulness of riches. You're just not content with what you have. Deceitful riches. Lack of contentment. I just need a little more money. I just need a growing savings account. And the things that you want suddenly become the things that you need. Those are two very different things, wants versus needs. And when wants become needs, that's the deceitfulness of riches. I have to have a new car. I have to have a bigger house. I have to have an extravagant vacation. I have to have a boat or a camper, or a fancy toy. The deceitfulness of riches. How about the desire for other things? So the idea that this life would just be easier if Christianity wasn't so extreme. I mean, is Jesus really the only way? Can I be a nice person Love people, be helpful, and avoid telling them that if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to hell? Wouldn't it just be better if we soften up a little bit on the requirements that the Bible puts on us? Couldn't we lighten it up just a little bit? Enjoy life, avoid conflicts, only say happy things. No warnings. No judgment, don't need hell in any conversation, just happy things, and still go to heaven. In my mind, those are the thorns that we're currently facing. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things that will absolutely choke out your spiritual life and cause you slowly but surely to walk away from Jesus.
So let me just ask you, plain and simple, is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus really enough? Is it clear in your minds, the conviction in your heart, that Jesus is better than anything this life could ever possibly offer me? Is it Jesus and then this one nagging thing that I, I just have to have? If it's not just Jesus, then you've got real thorns in your life. And I appeal to you to heed the warning, to repent of your sin of idolatry and delight yourself in Christ. Make sure that he is the treasure of your soul, that nothing's going to compete with that affection. And if it's competing, you're going to tear it down. You're going to rip it out to make sure that I just want Jesus. He's the treasure for my soul. Be clear. Either the seed is growing 30, 60, 100 fold, or there's thorns that are growing in your life. Which brings us to soil type number four, the good soil. Now notice very carefully what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, but the seed sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And bear fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. So the same word is being sown on all four soil types. But this soil, the good soil, accepts the word, embraces the word, and delights itself in the word. And as a result of delighting in the word, embracing the word, accepting the word, bears much fruit. So the difference is not the quality of the seed. And the difference is not the person's ability to hear, but the power of the word when it's embraced by good soil. And how do we know when that happens? It's evident and obvious, isn't it? It bears fruit. Please understand, the Bible has absolutely no category whatsoever for a fruitless Christian. I mean, Jesus himself says, good trees bear good fruit, and that if you love me, you'll obey me, and you'll keep my commandments. John 15, 7, Jesus says that whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So God in his grace first works in us and then God in his grace works through us so that we bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Then you might be wondering, what kind of fruit exactly are we talking about here? Well, the context again is helpful What did Jesus just say, Mark 3, 35, right before he told the parable? He says, forever, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So bearing fruit is doing the will of God. It's keeping Jesus' commandments. It's growing in Christ-likeness, including the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. But you have to be clear that you don't confuse fruit production with fruit perfection. So not everyone will have the same fruit or will produce it at the same rate. So some of us are going to be more bountiful in certain areas than others. And some will struggle 
We can even see this in our own lives, right? You, you come to faith in Christ and you immediately make huge strides in the areas of humility, generosity, and sharing the gospel. But you still struggle terribly with anger or patience or selfishness. And you could score it, couldn't you? Generosity, hundred, shift, hundred, bearing fruit, sharing the gospel, doing well, 60. Patience, mm, 30's a stretch, I, I, maybe a 15 or a 10, right? But the ultimate question isn't the rate of the fruit, but the reality of the fruit. So let me just ask you, is there kingdom fruit in your life? Meaning, are you doing the will of God? So not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. So being a listener who joyfully obeys, which is evident and obvious by the visible fruit in your life. And remember, kingdom growth is not always fast growth, but it is most certainly constant growth. So it's not about perfection, but it's absolutely about progress. There should be, must be progress. And you might look at your life today and compare it to last week and be totally discouraged. But if you compare your life today with where you were a year ago, there's incredible growth. And why is that? Because true believers in Christ hear the word, receive the word, and they respond to the word. So they bear much fruit and so prove to be Christ's disciples. So here's the question. What kind of soil do you think you are right now? Please don't answer that question in two seconds and move on. This is a good question for you to meditate on and pray for over the course of this week. What kind of soil do you think you are right now? I appeal to you to be a person who has ears to hear the word of the gospel this morning with a soft heart that joyfully receives it and willing hands and feet to live it out, doing the will of God in every area of your life with a voice willing to boldly proclaim it. One closing comment. Notice how the sower is very much in the background. So fruit production has very little to do with the sower. Right? All the sower needs to do is sow the seed. And why is that? Because the power is in the word. You know, that's why I started with Ichabod Spencer this morning. Because I don't know a single person who is more faithful or more intentional to be sowing the seed of the gospel. I mean, he averaged over 800 appointments every year talking with people about the state of their souls for 22 years. So sowing the seed of the word constantly, sowing the seed of the word indiscriminately, over 800 appointments. There's only 365 days in the year. I can't help but do the math. That's a lot of meetings per day. 
What if we did that? What if every single one of us in this church sowed the seed with that kind of intentionality and being that indiscriminate? What could God do with us to impact this area for the kingdom of God? So in the seat of the gospel, in our specific circles of influence, and not afraid to ask people about the state of their souls. So being intentional to schedule time, to have coffee, to ask the question, how do you think you're doing with the Lord? Not afraid, I'm not going to beat around the bush. How do you think you're doing with the Lord? What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Do you believe that there's a literal heaven and hell? What are your thoughts on that? And I'm just wondering, would it be okay if I told you what I believe about Jesus? Because I love you, and I'm for you, and I want you to experience the joy of eternal life. You know, people can't respond to the gospel if they never hear the gospel. So let us be those who sow the seed of the gospel so that others might hear and respond, that they might repent and believe, knowing, knowing, going into it, that we know the responses are going to vary. But that's really none of our concern. That's God's department. Our assignment, crystal clear. So, sow the seed of the word generously and indiscriminately so that God might use that word that people might come to faith and grow in grace. Allow me to pray that we would be a church like that. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now. The seed of the gospel has been sown. Lord, may you use it. May you be at work. The Spirit of God using the Word of God to impact the people of God. Lord, convict us of sin. Allow us to see areas in our life that should terrify us. That persecution causes us to cower in the darkness. Lord, let us repent. That there are things in our lives that should be wants that have become needs. Let us repent. Lord, I pray that if Jesus is not our greatest treasure, that we would repent. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let us repent and believe the gospel and bear fruit, doing the will of God, 30, 60, and 100-fold, that your name might be praised. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.